Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. Folks, there's a lot going on out there. Our world is changing every single day, from your iPhone in your hand to the wildfires outside. We give you the tools you need to feel better and to fight for a better future for everyone. Um, the context straight from the smartest people on earth, people who are on the front lines of the future working on this stuff, and the action steps you can take to not only feel better and get involved yourself, but to support them, to drive change. Our guests are data scientists, nurses, journalists, CEOs, founders, investors, educators, engineers, business leaders, you name it, astronauts, we even had a reverend. Some quick housekeeping, folks. Uh, you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp, or you can email us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. You can also join tens of thousands of other smart people and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. Once a week, every Friday, 10 minutes or less, you're going to get all caught up on the most important science news that's affecting yourself and your family and your business and your investments, our country, the world, plus some analysis and action steps you can take. Also, you can hunt for a new impactful job on the front lines of the future with these folks at importantjobs.com. Uh, and if you work for a company, if you run a company or organization or lab that's already doing that work, you can list your open roles there for free and get them in front of our entire community. And finally, if you haven't been listening recently, folks, go back, check out our recent conversations about the future of mosquitoes, how to protect yourself against wildfire smoke. You can find out how the universe is going to end and what that means for you and for people of color in science. And finally, how you can help beat poverty by giving people money. And of course, make sure to just hit that subscribe button on your phone so you're ready when our next conversations drop. We're talking to senators. We're talking to Jose Andreas about disaster relief. We've got so much awesome stuff coming. So subscribe now so you're ready to go. This week's episode, we're asking big questions about artificial intelligence ethics. And believe me when I say this applies to you. And also, it's kind of about Jurassic Park. Was Dr. Ian Malcolm right the whole time? Since 1994, when I asked for the Jurassic Park soundtrack for Christmas, will life always find a way? Is that bad? Well, we've got someone here today who can help provide some light on that. Uh, our guest today is the maybe actually irreplaceable Dr. Ruman Chowdhury. She is helping to build a new ethical backbone into Twitter from the inside out. And obviously, we are so thankful for her efforts to do that. I learned so much from this conversation. And so if you're curious about how your social networks work and what you're seeing and what you're clicking on, um, if you work on data science or if you're a founder that might implement some machine learning at some point, which is basically everybody at this point, this conversation is for you. Here we go. My guest today is Dr. Roman Chowdhury. And uh, together we're going to try to help you understand how quickly the fields of artificial intelligence and machine learning are advancing and some of the practical ethical considerations involved. I feel like there is a light on the horizon with these things. I think there's a lot of good folks and good companies out there trying to do the right thing, but also trying to move quickly. Uh, it's complicated, and, and I'm excited to dig into that uh, today with Dr. Uh, Chowdhury. Welcome, Dr. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Quinn. Absolutely. Uh, Ramon, tell us 
quickly, if you could, who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, I am the director of a team at Twitter known as Meta, Machine Learning Ethics, Transparency, and Accountability. So if you go on social media platform, uh, Twitter, or really almost any other device or platform, you will probably have some sort of algorithm or machine learning output impacting what you're seeing and how you're interacting with things. My job on that team is to ensure that the algorithms we're building at Twitter are responsibly and ethically built so that people aren't being unintentionally harmed. By background, I'm a data scientist and a social scientist. I'm what you would call the social science field of quant. Um, My PhD is in political science. Before I started at Twitter, I had a startup that did algorithmic audits. It was called Parity. And also, in I had I was the first lead at Accenture, um, which is a big tech consulting firm. I created their practice for uh, responsible AI. And I had really interesting folks I worked with all around the world for about four years. That is rad. All right. So you've got some you've got some game in this a thing. Little, I get just, it. just a little. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I'm I'm from from all of my uh, research. Uh, it, it seems like the world is is uh, should be should be very grateful for for you and and for what you're trying to do. So I'm excited to help folks understand that uh, today. Um, right before we get going, uh, Ramon, we like to start with one important question, a little tongue in cheek, uh, a little why are we all here type of thing. Um, instead of asking what is your entire life story is as fascinating as I'm sure that is. We'd like to ask, uh, Ramon, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Why am I vital to the survival of the species? Can I give you a very nihilist answer? You can give me, I mean, most people start with laughing at me and then I get something profound. Sometimes people just cackle and they don't stop. You can do whatever you feel, whatever comes to mind. Uh, I actually think that none of us are vital to the survival of the species. I I do think, though, that individuals could be extremely harmful to the species. I think it's very, unfortunately, imbalanced. I have a very feminist perspective of what it means to, to have positive change, and it's that it requires a lot of people in a lot of roles. So I don't think of myself as someone vital, but I do think that there are plenty of people, and I could be one of them, that are helpful. Or trying to be helpful. I'll take that. We'll take it. I mean, if that's what, you know, gets you out of bed every day, then <laughs> then, then great. We'll roll with it. Like you said, it's a little hard out there some days. So we'll uh we'll we'll roll with that. Here is why, uh, I guess to reiterate for myself and 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 for you and for everybody out there, you know, why I wanted to have this conversation, kind of where I hope we'll go with it. I feel like at least everybody who listens to this show, but across the wide spectrum, everyone's increasingly aware that some version of, as we're calling it, artificial intelligence comes, at least in this case, at least on the consumer level, in a lot of forms of machine learning, right? These neural networks. You've got these massive data sets, whether it's pictures or words, and algorithms for everything from your Instagram images, your uh, uh, Twitter abuse, hospital records, autonomous driving, dating matches, mortgages, right? All these things, booking flights. These systems are everywhere, and they're efficient. And uh, they're relatively cost-effective, and they are useful internally and often externally. But, you know, it's also pretty easy to see this with most tech advances, uh, and particularly this one, uh, thanks to some incredible chips and data processing, misuse and disuse uh, do happen. And in some ways, in some fields, they are more prominent than other. Quite a lot of the 
social sciences. Uh, you said your major is political science. I was, I'm, I'm like a pagan atheist, but I was a religious studies major. Uh, you know, not the most lucrative majors uh, anyone's ever had, but at the same time, integral to uh, being paired with uh, the quote-unquote hard sciences. Um, and they have often been, at least as far as I can tell, pretty left out a lot of this development, um, history and anthropology and collaboration of any sort. But we are all interacting with these systems uh, on the daily, whether it's on our phone or whatever it might be. So I wanted to explore some real-world, practical philosophies and mechanisms and guidelines in AI and machine learning and try to un better understand for myself and everyone else how, how they are being in some ways or could be developed and implemented in a more inclusive way. Uh, with hopefully the cooperation of not just folks internally, but users or patients or whoever it might be. And I couldn't think of anyone better to talk to uh, than yourself. Dr. Chowdhury, by all accounts, Facebook and YouTube and TikTok and Snapchat and like a horde of massive international social networks are in desperate need of folks like yourself. And I'm sure they do have some wonderful folks, but why did you choose Twitter? Uh, well, first of all, I like to call myself a Twitter power user <laughs> okay. of, uh, of all the social media platforms. Uh, it is actually the one I use the most. But you know, in, in seriousness, it is personally the one I have gotten the most value out of. I think a lot of people will say this. Uh, Twitter, for some reason, as a medium, is a place where a lot of us find our community. And for me, working in the field of responsible AI, it is actually how I've gotten to know so many people who work all around the world in my field. It's where we share papers, it's where we share our findings, it's where we share our thoughts. And, you know, there are so many people, and I think a lot of people will contest to this, that that we have met on Twitter that we consider to be actual friends. So that when, you mm. know, if we are ever in a situation where we meet physically, I have literally hugged people. I have never, well, pre-COVID. Mm. I have hugged people pre-COVID. <laughs> I was like, wait, no, don't, don't do that. Don't hug anyone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've, I've literally, you know, when I've, I, I, it's like we're old friends catching up, even though in retrospect, I'm like, wait, I've never actually physically met this person before. Um, I mean, the other thing is social media platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, et cetera, they have a huge impact on society and it is worth talking about and understanding and wrapping our heads around. Now, you know, everyone in the world is not on social media. Everyone in the world's not on Twitter, but many people in the world are impacted by it, even if they are not a participant of the platform. And we can, mm -hmm. we can think through political situations, social situations, um, what is the media that gets highlighted, you know, even things like people getting deplatformed or removed from the platform are, it's incredibly impactful. It has ramifications like, you know, the political scientist in me, like, you know, is thinking of all the papers one can write about the like socio-political impacts of like actions on social media platforms. It's, and people do write these papers. The other thing I liked about Twitter is, you know, it is actually a pretty small company. It is 6,000 people. So it is a... Is that it? It is, yeah. Uh, you know, compared to us, um, Facebook is about 90,000, I want to say. So it's interesting. We are, you know, we're, we're actually a medium-sized company with, you know, a, a profound footprint and a profound impact. So, you know, I could, you know, in this position, theoretically be somebody who could really, you know, drive this platform, you know, along with my counterparts and other folks in the company in a really positive direction, because it's not a giant behemoth you need to move. It's actually a fairly agile organization. And you kind of see it on the platform. There's a lot of experimentation that happens, a lot of open conversation back and forth, you know, 
just to highlight a specific example, this is before I even joined Twitter. I, I joined in, in late February slash early March. In October of last year, our Twitter users highlighted that there seemed to be bias, race and gender-based bias in our uh, algorithm that automatically cropped images for you as you posted on Twitter. And what I took away, what I really loved was that there was this conversation that happened between literally Twitter leadership and the general public where people did things like pull together data sets and like test it out on their own. I mean, there were funny ones, like someone made one of all these different Simpsons characters, like Apu versus Homer, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it was all done in the spirit of collaboration. And I, I don't know if I've seen another company interact so honestly it was just the you know it was not these were not tweets and conversations that were fabricated you know or written for them by other people and now that I've gotten to know some of these people I 100% know that these tweets were not written for them and you know nobody vetted them via you know some group I mean it was it was unfiltered and honest conversation I love that I mean that makes so much sense you know it's it's nice to see that you are excited about um, that uh, agility, it, it does seem like for those of us who've been spending an inordinate amount of time on Twitter for a long time, that the past, at least the past year and a half or so, even just on, you know, a basic, what would seem like a basic product side uh, to even a, a power user, uh, there has been um, some progress and an increasing rate of a development and transparency and you know, if not exactly literally open source uh, with some things, then, then real conversations about how it should be used and how we can be better. And I think you'd find a lot of people who'd think that the picture cropping is just a setting and not understanding that it's that it's intelligent and that that means uh, with anything that we have programmed, uh, which I feel like is the entire theme of this thing, it's going to either... either um, purposefully or inherently or even accidentally bring some of our human biases into them. And and a lot of that comes down to who is involved with designing it and implementing it and, and all that stuff. And so it's it's nice to see this little microcosm of something and realize like, wait, this isn't quite working correctly and it's actually working systematically in a way that's damaging to some folks. And, uh, you know, if, like you said, the the folks internally are are writing their own tweets and, and interacting in, a, in an honest and progressive way, then... That's awesome because, you know, Twitter does have a very outsized impact. We we know that for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's an ethos that I've seen throughout the company. Uh, there's been this openness to think through the issues of machine learning ethics. One thing I love about this field in general, we're very young and we're very new. I started my role at Accenture in 2017. I was one of the first people in the world to have a job like that. I mean, there have been researchers for quite some time, but really in an applied sense, I mean, fundamentally at my core, I'm a builder, I'm a tinker, I'm a data scientist. I really love making things and I like solving problems. That's frankly why 99% of people become data scientists, because you like solving problems and you know you solve it using code. Um, what I love about the work I do inside a company is I get to go do that. I get to go fix something and I get to go make something good. Um, but you need leadership buy-in. You need people to be excited about it. And, you know, they, in the few short months I've been here, I've been allowed to be very audacious. And, you know, I can talk through some of the stuff we're doing. But, you know, it's been it's made me really happy to see that kind of buy-in. And, and if anything, people are like, tell us what we can do. Like, give me your wildest mm. idea and we're going to go. We're going to go give it a shot. Why not? Uh, and I, yeah, I do think it boils down to you know some of Jack Dorsey's thoughts on transparency and decentralization, which he's talked about quite a bit. 
He's talked a bit about this concept of algorithmic choice, which my team is actually tinkering with. We're like, what does it mean to give people meaningful choice over the algorithms that are in the system? And you're right, most people don't even know how much of their yeah. experience is being curated for them. And you know, I will say, like, there are definitely many ways in which personalization is nice, and we we want that curation. At Twitter, you have the option sure. of going into the chronological, the reverse chronological timeline, or doing the curated timeline. And you know, a high majority of people actually end up going with the curated timeline uh, because it filters out a lot of stuff you don't really want to see. But also, it is worth being knowledgeable and understanding how algorithms can be impactful in, you know, for example, creating filter bubbles or, you know, highlighting certain information and not highlighting others. And it's really important for people to be knowledgeable. But yeah, I mean, what I love is that from the top down, this company is really supported. That's awesome. I mean, again, as, as someone who I think like you has found just this incredibly significant as a, as a cohort, but also a bunch of different uh, groups and individuals, uh, the ability to interact with folks that you wouldn't otherwise have in any other scenario, really. Um, you know, since I started this thing, and we don't just cover the data privacy or or artificial intelligence or neural networks or climate change or COVID, um, you know, I, I for every one of these conversations, I try to get basically like a 301 in this thing and just, just hustling in audiobooks and highlighting as fast as I can. But it's also trying to reach out to folks uh, who are the best in the world, who many of them are on uh, Twitter, uh, to have conversations, to understand how they're doing their work and how they're thinking. And I just can't think of it. Twitter might be the smallest of, uh, you know, uh, in raw users of, of 10 X 10 networks. But, but like you said, the outsized influence of the folks that are on there and the, who are willing to engage, uh, is something that I think we can all get a lot from, uh, if, if the tool is designed in an inclusive, um, useful way. I had this thought this morning, uh, because I'm, Again, a nerd who likes to read, um, and I've been going back through all sort of my all-time favorite sci-fi and fantasy books and things like that. And I, I thought we could talk for a moment about, uh, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics. They're, God, they got to be almost 100 years old now. Uh, I think, you know, they were both prescient and probably horrifically outdated in a lot of ways if you look under the hood. They obviously, like, don't cover everything, but they're also, like, this incredible foundation and and they exist in the context of uh, robots or or androids um as servants primarily but it's also compelling because it implies for our conversation today that we understand what these robots or servants are doing and why and that we retain control over that which is i think one of these issues you see a lot of uh when when it's you know the the black box as they describe it for a lot of these algorithms, right? And the laws are, the laws are human may not, uh, a robot may not injure a human being through inaction or action or allow a human being to come to harm. They have to obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where it conflicts with the first one, which is to harm through action or inaction. And it must protect its own existence, right? As long as it doesn't conflict with the other two. And it reminded me of this basically trying to get ahead of like, oh, we've built this thing. Let's set up some rules for it. And it remind me of some of the work that um, uh, Dr. Uh, Jennifer Dudna and her crew did in the early days of CRISPR too, when they took the step back and they recognized very quickly, like, holy shit, this thing that we have discovered slash made could be just incredibly powerful in so many ways. Mm -hmm. 
And very quickly, they're like, no CRISPR babies, right? No germline edits. Like, we can't do this. And of course, there's going to be folks who, who, who ignore that, and there have been some. But for the most part, there's been this interesting community adherence to these fundamental tenets. I think it seems like to a lot of folks that the the field, again, which is super broad of, of artificial intelligence, is a little more behind there. And I wonder, is is that true? And if not, uh, is it because it's so much more broad and encompassing? Or is it because we've been working on versions of AI for decades now, or it's moving quickly? Like, how, where do you fall on sort of that spectrum as one of the first people to really practically work on yeah, this side so- of it? I am so glad you framed this question the way you did. I feel like too few people make that link and make that connection. I was getting a little scared when you started with the Asimov rules because I'm like, oh God, is he going to ask me about Terminator? Please don't ask me about Terminator. <laughs> and no, I'm no, like, no, do, no, do no. I have to I mean, launch into my like spiel about we're not in AGI world? But you know, your connection is actually God, no. not, not only is it uh, the right one to make, it's funny because I was re-watching Jurassic Park, like the original, the 90s Jurassic Park. So good. Right, which which actually is a film issue, like version of the problem that you're talking about. And very specifically in the first half of the movie, there's this, and I had forgotten, so I saw this as a kid, right? I'd forgotten so much of the stuff watching it as an adult, and especially in this field, I'm like, they could actually be talking about the uses of machine learning and AI right now. So they're sitting at this table, and this is sort of when uh, you know, they've lost power in the park and like they don't know where the kids are, et cetera. And they're sitting on the center table. No, sorry, this is before, sorry, this is before they go off. And they're they're debating, you know, the, you know, whether or not he should have actually made this park event. You know, is it is it the right thing to do? And, and you know, the paleontologists are like, no, this is a terrible, if you have no respect for nature and you have no respect for chaos. And, and then interestingly, like, again, watch it as a kid, right? So, you know, Jeff Goldblum's character is like the like weird, the, he's Jeff Goldblum in every, sure. you know, it's yeah, like Jack, Jeff Nicholson, right? There. right? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, he's, he's like Jack. the dude. Um, and, you know, but he is supposed to be a, a chaos theory mathematician and he said, you know, his famous line is life always finds a way. But, you know, like he is actually correct and that like all the worst case scenario things start to happen because entropy is is real. So how does this link to things like AI, right? And you, you're right. I, I think there can be a lot of ego in this field, a lot of assumption of control. And in, in a sense, Asimov rules can't apply because we don't have control. And it's not in the scary, you know, Terminator, it's going to be sentient kind of way. It actually, a lot of it comes from just not doing a lot of the basics and not really understanding how society works and how human beings interact, right? And this is where someone like myself and all of the other folks who do the kind of work I do, it is unsurprising that so many of us can come from a background of social sciences or sociology. And, you know, we have also learned programming and, you know, development, uh, AI development. But, you know, it, once you you have, you get a respect for the complexity of the human experience, once you've actually tried to build a model to do some sort of prediction of human behavior, it is actually, you know, it, it's, it's very confusing, it's very paradoxical, it's very complex. So to say that we're building these systems that quote replicate or understand the human brain is, you know, it's it's shorthand that actually has quite a lot of hubris and ego behind it. And you're right, it often goes unchecked, in part because people love, you know, the the picky narrative. Uh it's gonna get you all the quote tweets, it's gonna get you, you know, it's gonna get you on all the shows and whatever. And it's harder to say like, well, you know, we should be more thoughtful about the kind of data and we 
don't want to bake in our, you know, the, the, the endemic social harms that exist in society. There is no way an AI system can be built by a human that is not reflective of these harms unless you have very thoughtfully, you know, looked at your data and looked at your model and your model assumptions. And there's a lot of demystifying that folks like myself do. This stuff is not magic. There's a whole conversation of, you know, should we stop using the term artificial intelligence? Because to some people, it's really scary. And other people, it's very alienating. They automatically assume all the stuff they've seen in movies about AI, when actually what we're talking about are algorithmic decision-making systems. It's just deciding what pair of shoes to show you. It's not a wink. It's not going to go talk to another algorithm, right? right? right. But, but this is what people think. But yeah, I think there's an excellent parallel because... But the interesting thing is it's not because our tools are so complex, it's because they're so blunt. What surprises me sometimes is just how actually simplistic they are. They just work at a colossal scale. So it seems bigger than it is. Yeah, no, and, and a lot of it's actually just math. Um, so as a quant social scientist, you know, my my background is actually in uh, quantitative methods and you know lots of stats. And the thing is a lot of this, a lot of machine learning, especially, and also AI is like a lot of kind of complex-ish math. And you know, you can really think through and have a lot of fun thinking about the mathematical assumptions that are made in building this code and how they manifest themselves in reality. It's, you know, it's a fun like thought exercise, to be honest. I'm sure. And 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 it's really thank you for for sharing all of that. It you know, it's interesting when you, <laughs> it's a little bit of the Wizard of Oz pulling back the curtain and, and you know, when you're like, look, th- these are actually fairly, I don't want to say simplistic, but like you said, blunt tools and a collection of blunt tools. Um, but the the design and the implementation and who is doing that, uh, you know, we just, I'm I'm a nerd. I, I, I love all of this stuff. I love all of the progress. I, I'm happy to I don't want to say celebrate all of the technological progress we've made, but but I'm I'm excited about it while also cognizant of and wary of the fact that there's so much real world shit that we are either f- forget like we haven't fixed, you know, but we can't even have a conversation in this mm-hmm. country to acknowledge. I mean, again, we're not we're close to to reparations uh, for what we did in slavery and reconstruction or with uh, the indigenous population. You know, we can barely talk about that we redlined cities and now climate change is here. And and you see reports that are just like, oh, these cities in those areas, it's eight degrees hotter already. You know, um, so so if we can't even begin to deal with this stuff, but we're designing systems that are taking those biases and they're fairly blunt. You know, yeah, sure, it could just be showing you shoes, right? Relatively harmless. Absolutely. Well, and also, you know, that was maybe a facetious example, but we do have AI systems or ML systems that literally replicate redlining. Um, So my colleague, Dr. Chris Gilliard, he coined this term digital redlining. And what happens is, and we've actually seen this happen. So the very direct example would be in the city of Chicago. I forget, I think it was an insurance company. I I actually don't remember what company it was, um, made of like a lending algorithm to determine riskiness. All companies do this, by the way, in this field now. They create some sort of like a riskiness algorithm to determine based on a wide, you would be surprised, the data that is pulled into this. It's it's 
actually way more than the obvious data. Um, you know, pulled in a bunch of data to determine a, you know individual applicants' likelihood to default on a loan. One of the input is zip code because guess what? Zip code is highly correlated with you know someone's financial situation and likelihood to default. But also in many places, it is associated with race. So what would happen? And because of literally the history of redlining and how the, the city of Chicago and surrounding area are structured, as well as many other cities, we actually literally replicate redlining, uh, you know, in our code and in the output of the code. Another example, which was, you know, interesting slash sad was Amazon delivery trucks in the Boston area. So, you know, if you know Boston, you know that there's sort of the affluent part of the core city, there's sort of the, the outer ring, which is less affluent, then there are the very affluent suburbs, right? So when Amazon was figuring out where to offer next day delivery, in part, it was a function of, you know, where, where are the richer neighborhoods? Like where are the people who are most likely to be prime subscribers? Sure. And what would happen was, the, so they would offer them in these more affluent areas, so center of Boston, affluent suburbs, and these not offer it in the lower income areas, but these trucks are literally driving through these other neighborhoods to get from, you know, the core center to the outer suburbs, but they're not offering you know, they're, they're, they're not offering that service. I mean, and yeah, sure, whatever, next day delivery, but, but, but that's you know, literally... It's I mean, terrible. that's literally what we did with highways in, in the 50s, 60s, yeah. and 70s. I mean, that's it's exact yes. same thing, but with Amazon trucks. Yes. And now we're like, wait a minute, do we just need to get rid of these highways? And it's like, fucking maybe. Like, that's what you did. Right. No, yeah. Right, right. No, so it is, we're seeing in some situations, like a very clear line from the mistakes of the past being codified into mistakes of the future. And what's really, what's well, actually mistakes of today. And what's worse is, there's this veneer of objectivity. That is the thing I worry about the most is this veneer of objectivity that technology applies. And, oh, it's an algorithm. I mean, how many times have you heard the phrase, oh, the data sure. says so, right? And that is such a common refrain. So, you know, people hide behind the output of a code, scared of the output of the code. And there's all these interesting studies about whether or not people feel like they can refute an algorithmic response um, versus like a person saying something to them. Um, it's a very, it's a very different and scary feeling we have when an AI is telling us something. We're also seeing it in the criminal justice space. Uh, algorithms have been used to de determine parole, and it was also found by ProPublica that these algorithms were racist. And then, interestingly, it wasn't because of some complex coding thing. If you dug into it, and like, thank you, Julia Engwin, for making all this work public. Their survey that they used to collect data to create this model was, in my opinion, as somebody who wrote surveys for many years and a social scientist, one of the most biased things I have read in my life. Yeah. So it, it would ask you like what I call the Jean Valjean question. Is it ethical to steal bread if you're hungry? How does that, how is that a valid question in determining if someone should get put? They would ask whether your parents were divorced, whether or not you grew up as, how is this valid? Who your friends were, if your friends had been arrested, sure. right? You know, it was it was very scary, and all of this gets codified. And this parole board, they just see that an algorithm, theoretically, you know, and all of the all of the normative assumptions we make about data and algorithms, the algorithm said that this person should or should not get parole, and it absolutely influences decision making. Right from from step one, like you said, mm -hmm. before we even get to the algorithm, it is the design of the yeah. of the harvesting device absolutely. itself, which again, absolutely. somebody designed that, and then someone signed off on it, and then someone published that, and mm -hmm. that's that's where it feels like we we have to you know, really consider this and why I'm so happy and excited about the work you're doing and that it's you doing this work. So I'm curious, are there any 
in your experience so far, not just at Twitter, but um, any significant examples or maybe things we haven't heard of, of some of the more, some more prominent tech companies or larger companies or someone like Accenture backing off a feature or uh, finding it difficult, if not, I guess, having self-awareness, right? Finding it difficult or not impossible mm-hmm. to to build and, and implement something equitably, recognizing, you know, n- none of this stuff is is perfect, uh, but but we... For for probably a million reasons, we still see Facebook recommending political groups to people, even after they said, like, we're not doing that anymore, right? We still see so much dis and misinformation around vaccines. And there's been so much excellent journalism lately about, like, these are literally the 12 people driving most of it. And this is the one guy driving even the most of it. It's like, how does one person have that so much power, right? You look at YouTube, which is just this incredible resource in the world. Like, the things you can learn from this, it's insane. But... It's also so well documented that a few stray clicks and you are down the rabbit hole of of false medicine or racism or hate groups or whatever it might be. What am I missing? Like, what, what, where have been some examples that we can learn from of folks and companies taking a step back and going like, oh, hold on, maybe this isn't working the way we we thought it should. Besides, like you were saying, some of the stuff that Twitter's done with the the photo cropping and such. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's an interesting question because it's it's a tough time right now. And I'm going to acknowledge it's a tough time for a lot of folks working in responsible uh, machine learning and responsible AI field. Um, Earlier this year, late last year, Google uh, infamously fired the two leads of its uh, responsible AI research team, uh, Dr. Timothy Gabriel and Dr. Meg Mitchell. Um, And that was very disheartening for a lot of people. They had built, and you know, a lot of those folks still work on that team. Uh, They had built a really, really amazing team of folks, like many of whom I consider my friends. And it was it was hard to see such a big company, you know, take such a drastic and painful step backwards. To be honest, you know, so it's. I, I frankly, I feel like the industry hasn't had a lot of wins. I can only speak to the stuff, you know, the stuff I've built. What I will say, you know, because a lot of this is a client of course, no, work that I did before. Yeah, no, it's totally fine. But but what, what I'll say is, you know, I think sometimes there is, I mean, there is a lot of attention paid to the big tech companies. And, and there should be, right? Like the Microsofts and, you know, Amazons and Facebooks and Googles and Twitters of the world. Um, where I found the most potential for doing this stuff right was actually in the companies that adopt AI systems, but they are not you know, at their core AI company. So what does it mean when like Coca-Cola is adopting AI, right? And how do they understand how these things are used? Or McDonald's, for example, or, you know, your favorite soap brand or, you know, something like that. What's really interesting is a lot of these companies and these brands are very consumer conscious. They've been around for a really long time. And sure, they see AI and ML as a way of like expanding their business. Are they willing to do it at, at all costs? No. Frankly, they do a risk calculation in their heads and they're like, well, you know, if we are some company that has built our brand on being family friendly, do we want facial recognition cameras identifying children? Eh, People are not going to like that, right? They're not going to like targeted ads, you know, that we give to babies or whatever to buy our products. And, you know, we don't want parents saying, I'm not bringing my kids here. That to them matters more than some fancy tech. And I'll give you a very specific example. During my time at Accenture, um, we had a client that was a prominent makeup client. So if you have ever followed the makeup world at all, you know, one thing that has happened and like, thank you, Rihanna, and among other folks, is that the... Well, I, I, <laughs> Rihanna so much, love. so much love. So much love. Right? 
uh, one thing that has happened is the diversity of shades and colors that now exist are impressive. And they were, these were colors that did not exist for people uh, even a few years back. So this company was looking at a image detection or a facial skin detection uh, algorithm that would match you with your foundation shade. Uh, and I pointed them to uh, Joy Bolomini's work um, at MIT um, called Gender Shades. And she actually worked with Dr. Timmy Gabriel, who was then, who was later sure. the uh, lead of the, the team at Google, where they uncovered that these algorithms did not correctly identify faces of color. I'm like, do you really want a darker skinned black a customer going in front of your system saying, oh, I want to match my foundation shade. And it says, no face detected. You don't want that. Uh, you know, and these are considerations that these companies are willing to make. They, they would rather not adopt a technology than adopt a faulty technology or biased technology. Sure. And, and honestly, that's where I see there being a lot of potential to do good. Mm -hmm. And one way to, to push that good forward and to sort of nudge the needle on tech companies, one of the ways is for companies that are adopting these technologies to be more critical and ask better questions. And that was one of the things I used to help companies do. I mean, that, it feels like that's what so so much comes down to, right? Just asking better questions. I mean, start with asking questions, but try to learn how to ask ask better ones. Because if it, if it even makes you pause, then that's something, right? Because that feels like something that we're lacking. On the other hand, one of America's like most enduring uh, established credos and arguments is that the market. It can fix everything, right? And and I love uh, the market and I love competition when we have it. But I mean, quite literally, the way our our companies in America are codified, are formalized, is to provide value to sh to shareholders, to to stockholders. That that is in the way like you are developed as as a corp, which just immediately off the bat, before you can do anything, provides an immediate base layer of incentives that are often at odds with what's best for society or even that company's customers sometimes, right? Again, you talked about Coca-Cola or, or, or McDonald's and, and if they never, if artificial intelligence didn't exist, they still have to ask these questions about, right? But we have, we do have, we, we need to advertise to kids if we're going to drive sales of soda and because that's what provides value to the stockholders, right? I'm curious what you feel like, what roles uh, what role does incentives, do incentives play in this rush to design and then implement machine learning and artificial intelligence across so many different systems and fields? Like, what are those primary ones that you run into most often? Yes. Uh, and, you know, it's like you're reading my mind. So you're, you're uh, about a year ago, uh, <laughs> you're like, yes, did you also not know I'm a telepath? <laughs> so a little over a year ago, um, some colleagues and I... Uh, did some research and wrote a paper on responsible AI in practice. And, you know, our, our intent, we've interviewed about 25 people who have my kind of role in specifically in corporations. So we were looking at people who were in, you know, had a role to either deliver or create responsible AI practice. And we asked them, you know, what would it take for this to be successful at your organization? So what are you seeing today? Where do you see it heading? And what is the ideal state for you? What are your big blockers? There's a few things to be uncovered. So First of all, the, the background literature we relied on and the, the research that we're starting from is actually the research on organ, theories of organizational change management. So really for companies to adopt responsible AI, the, the kind of work that we need to think about is you know, how have we driven change, organization-wide change 
before. And this could be something as simple, and it's actually not silly, as companies moving to more casual dress codes from having to wear suits. Like I specifically remember when my dad, like, you know, who is, you know, I love my dad to pieces, but, you know, very old school conservative guy, like literally one day was like, how do I dress for work now? Because he'd been used to wearing shirts and ties and slacks his whole life, right? And he had, you know, my dad is also the type that like cuts the lawn and like a short sleeve button down, you know? I love my dad. But, you know, it's like take him shopping for polo shirts and khakis, right? So, but facetious example, but like, you know, how do you spark organizational organization wide change? Um, so, you know, we highlighted four or five things that would be really critical to making responsible AI successful. And one of those things actually was incentives. And this is the biggest thing. So, incentives for people and incentives for our AI models that we're building. So, we could do a whole other very mathy, nerdy podcast about how we measure success for our algorithms. And I could rant all day about how machine learning people are obsessed with with something called accuracy. And it is a statistical value known as R squared. And it unfortunately, it, it is one of many ways one measures the, what we call robustness or the correctness essentially of a model, but it just got the best name. So like accuracy becomes a thing, right? But then, but it plays this game of telephone where if I'm talking to a policy person or a CEO of a company or someone who's not, you know, a, a stats person or a machine learning, learning person, I go, oh, the model accuracy is 99%. You're, you know, this person's going to think, wow, it is so correct at predicting the real world when actually that is patently untrue. So we need better ways of measuring success of our models, but we also need better ways of measuring success in people. So, you know, uh, you know, a more down-to-earth example is the average data scientist is not incentivized to think of ethical concerns when building a model. You know, you are paid based on how quickly you push out your code, how quickly your model is trained, you know, and quote-unquote metrics of things like accuracy, right? Um, so, you know, being the person who would raise your hand and say, you know, I spent a half day deep diving into this code and I realized we have massive gaps and like this X population, and that's going to lead to some output biases. For a lot of people, the answer to that is nobody asked you to do that, right? And, and um, you know, it's it's not incentivized. And, you know, I'll make a parallel here to diversity, equity, and, and inclusion initiatives, where the place where we see the needle being moved is when and managers are incentivized in their performance reviews. They are assessed on the diversity of their teams. That is the only, that is one of the biggest drivers to actually sparking diversity, not, not just inclusive programs and having interns and, you know, having all the nice, you know, a lot, a lot of nice programming. But the thing that moves the needle is making it quantifiable and, and making your job in part count on having a diverse team. The same applies to responsible and all. How do we incentivize people in a company to do the right thing? How do we make it easy for them to adopt? And that's that's my job. I make the tools and I make the things that make it easier for ML modelers to do, to do work responsibly and ethically. But then also, how do we start building the right kinds of incentives, i.e. metrics for our models, so that we're able to say, like, sure, that's the accuracy, but this is, by the way, the impact. And this is how it's impacting this community. Like it's actual measurable harm rather than kind of me having a specter floating over it, right? Um, At the end of the day, folks like myself, we're here to make better products. And sometimes that means not using machine learning, but sometimes it means using machine learning wisely. Um, And that's really all we're here to do. It's a a small order. So... Just, just, you know, I'll have it on my Yeah, it's a a gig, right? It's it's, uh, it's... (laughs) a... <laughs> not, not something like examination of the human race. No, it's a, it's just a side project. Um, 
That's awesome. I, again, I appreciate you sharing so much pr- perspective on that. Um, it, again, it's, again, I've got th- three tiny, very curious children. There's two things. One, there's this amazing, uh, GIF, GIF, I'm a moron out there of, uh, uh, it's, it's Yoda in Empire Strikes Back right before he like disappears. And it just says, Luke asked so many questions that Yoda finally just gave up and died. And that's what it feels like <laughs> having an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old and a six-year-old. And I, I couldn't love more how much, I mean, I'll ask my six-year-old, what are you thinking about the big bang? I mean, uh, okay, but it's like endless questions, but I, it, it keeps me in this element of the five degrees of, of why or whatever you want to call it of like, but why, but why, but why? And sometimes the answer, that first principle or, or, or the practical implementation of getting to the bottom of that system or a problem can be as simple as like you were saying, and, and apologize if I misconstrue this, but building an incentive into measurement of, your, of a manager's review of literally how, to, how, how inclusive and diverse is your team. Forget the programs, forget all that other stuff. It's literally, it's, it's a quantifiable, like very basic measurement and, and metric. And I think to some people, I can see how that would seem elementary, but it's not. And if we don't fix that root elementary problem, then all that other shit mm-hmm. just like, isn't going to do anything, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean and, and I do think here's where like, yes, the problem is daunting and there are some really, really big issues to work through, right? Like qu- quite literally the systemic biases embedded in the systems that are being constructed. But at the same time, that is not always a helpful narrative mm-hmm. uh, because as we were talking about with climate change, sometimes the big, big, scary narrative that everything is on fire and we're all going to die, it just makes people give up yeah. and they don't want to try. And I, I do genuinely think that we're, we're at a time where there is, you know, as you said in the beginning of the podcast, there is, there is hope. Like we can build better sure. systems. There's so much positive potential. Sometimes the folks who work in my field were painted as naysayers, and, and I find that kind of ridiculous. I think we are the biggest optimists because we don't just see these systems as being able to recreate status quo or make status quo incrementally easier. We actually see it as fundamentally changing things positively. So when folks might, like myself get frustrated, it's because we're thinking this could be so much better. Oh, gotcha. Not that we don't, not, not that you know it shouldn't exist. I mean, sometimes yes, it shouldn't exist, or definitely things that shouldn't exist. But at the same time, you know, education is such a great example. I used to be so excited about ed tech and ed tech is actually what got me into responsible AI. Cause I'm like, oh, there's all these really cool things you can sure. do with education and like remote education and learning how children, like adjusting education to a child specific needs. And instead what ed tech has become is this horrific, panoptic, punitive system uh, that like reinforces terrible power structures. And like, as somebody who spent many years as a teacher would literally suck all the joy (laughs) out of teaching from me. And I have, you know, plenty of the folks in this field are academics. A lot of my friends have said they've gotten so burned out because of these punitive, panoptic, blunt, broken systems that are being built instead of the educational tools that would actually facilitate, you know, good communication in an era of COVID. Sure. I mean, (laughs) We've had a pretty incredible opportunity over the past 18 months to to look at, and of course, many of these things had to be rushed to market and, and suddenly scaled up so that every American child who has internet, which is not every American child, could use them. So understandably, like, not going to be perfect systems, but again, we've had this opportunity to look at it and go like, wait a minute, are we even, how are we thinking about this? Who is included? Who are we having conversations with about this? Um, who is going to be yeah. use it? Uh, you know, it's, 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 
it's frustrating. And again, so much of it comes down to who is who is designing it and implementing it, who is not there to ask questions, but also literally the way companies are designed uh, to function, you know, as as an entity. Let's say I'm an up and coming uh, data scientist or an engineer or a founder who will probably implement some machine learning or some version of AI, if we want to call it that, across my products internally or customer facing or consumers or B2B or SAS. What do you feel like at this point in your career are some fundamental transferable? So it's, you know, these aren't specific things for each thing, but transferable best practices, again, like Asimov's three laws type of things that you feel are helpful and valuable to start with that people can apply? Yeah, um, I guess I'll start with sort of the data scientist looking for a job. So everything, everything, of course, is a function of privilege. If you have the privilege of, you know, interviewing in a bunch of different places and being able to, you know, weigh your options, et cetera. So I'm, I'm going to start off by actually by saying that, you know, I very much don't think the burden of making this change is on the people who are getting their first job. Getting a job in tech is very hard uh, and you should get your foot in the door. Right. And the goal is, you know, hopefully to put yourself in a position where you can, you know, be a change maker. That being said, there are things that I would suggest people do if they have the opportunity to really vet companies and, you know, have the luxury of weighing multiple options. So, you know, I would specifically ask about, you know, how do they do work in algorithmic ethics and, you know, how do they build their systems responsibly? You know, what is their take on having diverse teams? Um, You know, and even, Specifically, when you have a technical interview, I would actually ask the person interviewing you, what are some technical ways in which you audit or assess your models? Do you have this kind of functionality at your company today or are you planning on having one? And, you know, to be honest, most of the time, the answer is going to be something like, oh, we don't know. And like, oh, we're trying, which is actually what should be the answer. What I would worry is if you have an overly confident person who's saying, oh, yeah, we got this sorted out. Like, don't worry. Like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I would worry then. And I would also worry if they just laugh at you and they're like, oh, like, we're not. Uh, that's not a problem for us. So those two answers I would worry about. A good answer would be something in the middle that's along the lines of, that would be the answer I would give is, we are trying our best and here are the things we are doing to try, but we know that we haven't figured it all out yet Um, because this is not a field where anybody has figured everything out. So that would be one. Um, Founders is a a really great question. I'm glad you brought up founders because there's a big difference between, you know, punching up and punching at the Googles and Amazons of the world and, you know, punching over down to to a founder, right? Because, you know, having been a founder, it's very scary and it's very precarious. And, you know, to your comment earlier about about shareholders uh, versus customers, nowhere is that more evident when you talk to founders, you are beholden to the people investing in your company. So if you are a founder, number one, I would say, you know, you know, choose your investors wisely um, and choose people who will allow you to, you know, actually say no to unethical uh, unethical uh, potential clients, for example, or won't push you towards scale at all costs or growth at all costs, uh, or you know, kind of being invasive with people's data and just make money. Don't worry about it, right? And you can definitely find people. There are people that exist. I will also plug for a second that I've started a VC fund on responsible innovation um, for exactly this purpose, so that founders, you know, so that founders actually can get funding from people who do believe in responsible and ethical technology, and we're willing to invest in it. 
The other thing for founders is there is this group that a co- that two colleagues of mine, Bile Reznor and Wolena Negron, have started. It's called Startups in Society. Uh, and the purpose of Startups in Society is to give founders positive examples, resources, and connections to VCs uh, that are all, you know, really involved in the creation of better technology. So, you know, there is promise for founders. There are resources out there. Sure, it is much easier to go get a pile of cash from a big name VC who doesn't care. And all they will do is aggressively push you to grow and make money. And that's a choice, but there are options. And, you know, so it's hopefully going to be a better playing field when it comes to funding and growing companies. And, you know, consumers are also more conscious as well. So it's really important that founders think about this kind of thing. That's really helpful. I appreciate it. And yeah, you know, it's, um, there's so much VC money out there and, and the stakes when you take those checks checks are, are just, so high that sometimes, you know, on the one hand, you want to cheer when it's a product or a company or founders that you love and they they get their big checks and they can go build and scale something amazing. It's on one hand to cheer. On the other hand, you know, I've I've invested in some things. I've I've done startups. I've worked on the inside of big companies. I, I also look at it as like, oh shit, like what's being asked of them now is is in some shades pretty unten- untenable, if not impossible to reach without Necessary. I don't want to say shortcuts, but without pausing to ask some questions sometimes about why haven't you hit your growth marks. Yeah, so that's really cool to hear about those. We'll definitely put all those uh, groups in the show notes. Before we get into the last sort of few questions we ask everybody, I'd love to hear about Twitter's, uh, about your uh, bias bounty challenge that you've launched. Um, I, yes. I want to nerd. I'm so excited. I know. I'm doing I, a happy dance yes, because uh, we're on audio. I want to nerd out about this for one second. <laughs> Tell us uh, what it is and why is it so groundbreaking that you guys are doing this? Uh, so two years ago, I was mm-hmm. at Defcon um and I had a really really great time uh, and I learned a lot and you know I saw this parallel world to my world of algorithmic ethics in you know this field of um, privacy and security and infosec and you know I was on a panel we were talking about deep fakes and I remember like we ended up in a whole conversation about this idea of an algorithmic bias bounty. Um, so the way a bug bounty works in the security and you know uh, privacy space is a company will put up a piece of software or some product that they have, uh, and they'll say, like, if you make these bad things happen, we will pay you. So basically identify sure. vulnerabilities in what we're doing. Um, and that stuck in my brain for literally two years. Um, and until Twitter, I didn't really work at a company or have a situation yeah. where I could do that. Because the thing is, you have to be the owner of an algorithm. You have to be a company that has an algorithm. And the company has to say, yeah, you know what, put this out there. Um, and the first person I ran this by is our CTO, Prague. And I was like, Prague, this is, okay, this is a wild idea, Prague, but like, tell me what you think. Ah. He's like, go ahead, go do this. Uh, so we pulled together this challenge. It's the, the first of its kind. We know we're, we're experimenting, we're, we're, we're figuring it out. And, you know, so we've launched officially today. It's part of DEF CON. We're using HackerOne, which is sort of a, a vulnerability platform uh, as our sort of core platform that we're hosting. Our rubric and everything is up online. People have a week. It's open to anybody in the world. And that's actually, it was a very intentional thing. We want, often our field is very Western. Uh, and it's actually very specifically a, a particular type of person, right? Uh, most of us were raised middle class or upper middle class. You know, we all have very Western educations, so we're all college educated, but most of us are. Uh, and what I want are different perspectives and people all around the world who are going to tell us, hey, you know what, you need to think about caste-based discrimination. 
because you don't talk about caste in, in America, right? Uh, or you need to think about this particular sub-community that doesn't exist in Western countries and is very specific to some part of the world. So yeah, the challenge is up. Uh, we're offering money, cash prizes for the people who are in first, second, third place, as well as most innovative and most generalizable. We also have an amazing panel of judges. Um, so for you know anyone who's listening to the podcast who's a bit of an infosec nerd, like Mudge works at Twitter. Uh, if you like follow like OG security world, uh, yesterday is my, Mudge and I have been on many meetings together, but yesterday was my first time meeting him one-on-one. They had to take a minute to, 100%. to fangirl. And he, a hundred percent, but he gets so embarrassed. I'm like, I promised, you know, my colleague on the team, Utah, I promised her I wouldn't fan for too long because she's like, he gets embarrassed about it. Like, but I have to. I mean, come on. Anyway, so I, I fan for a minute, um, but, you know, much is super excited. He's one of our judges. Uh, Ariel Herbert Voss, uh, who's at OpenAI, she's another judge. Patrick Hall, uh, who's a data scientist running a consultancy firm on algorithmic audits. Uh, as well as Matt Mitchell from the Ford Foundation, but he's sort of a public interest cybersecurity hacker. So we have a wide range of super interesting people. We're really excited about people's submissions and, and what they're gonna what they're gonna show. So that's awesome. It's like a m- murderer's row of 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 OGs, like you said, uh, to to judge this thing. What this will probably come out after that's complete. So let's go back to the future for just a second before we get out of here. What don't you know that you're hoping to find out from this? Oh, uh, tons, <laughs> tons. I think the way we sometimes identify harms can be incorrect. I think the ways we are, you know, framing these problems can be problematic. You know, I, I think, you know, where we choose to investigate and how we choose to investigate can be limited and flawed. And we're really hoping for a rubric that's generalizable that we sure. can start using and the public can start using across a lot of different models. All right. Uh, last one, and then you're out of here. What is a book you've read this year that has opened your mind to something you hadn't considered before or changed your thinking in some way? Oh, I love this one. Uh, And there's so many. Um, A book that I recommend to almost everybody who works in my field or in any field that's trying to drive change uh, is this book called Against Purity by Alexis Shotwell. And it's, you know, it it is a notion that a lot of us struggle with, this idea that there is this pure ideal form of something. You know, climate change is a good example. Are you really a climate change activist unless you're like living in a shack in the woods, drinking rainwater and, you know, and what she talks about is how it is a colonialized and derivative mindset. So it is, yeah. it's really helpful to really frame like, how do we do this kind of work effectively? I love that. Uh, the climate's legion of gatekeepers is a, just a bit of an issue that we're trying to wrestle with. So I, I love that perspective. Roman, I know you got to run. Thank you so much uh, for your time and your perspective and all the work you're doing there. I know you're just getting started, at least at Twitter. So uh, I can't wait. It just occurred. I was clicking on something to make sure I put you in the show notes and I saw that you're not verified and it's like the funniest thing I've ever seen. Um <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Please give Jack my love. And we're going to turn you. this baby off. And um, I'll send you a little follow-up. But but thank you again. We really appreciate what you're doing out there. Twitter is important. And uh, we're lucky to have you. Thanks, Quinn. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. 
Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us. You know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jam and music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.